Merry Christmas. It's good to see all of you. Welcome to, as you heard just a little bit earlier, the first of 33 of these at various locations around South Carolina and Georgia and North Carolina. I want to welcome those of you who may be in one of those locations. I want to say Merry Christmas to you. We're glad that you are along with us uh, tonight as we celebrate um, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Hey, let me ask you a question. How many of you traveled to get here tonight? How have you traveled? Okay, how many of you will be doing some traveling maybe during the holidays? Some of you will be doing some traveling. Okay. How many of you traveled um, at least 90 miles? Anybody? At least 90 miles. Okay, over here. Um, did, did you ride a camel or a donkey? Uh, sir, are you pregnant? It's a good thing. That would be a greater miracle probably than the one we're going to talk about, huh? All right, how about 800 miles? How many of you, anybody come 800 miles or more? Okay, all right, 800 miles. Wow, all the way from Louisiana. Wow, that's a long donkey trip. How many of you you would agree with that? Well, you know, um, I heard about a guy that, I think he went to one of our Charleston campuses here, and he, he called his son up in Columbia, actually, the day before Christmas Eve, And he said, son, I hate to ruin your day, but I have to tell you that your mother and I are divorcing. He said, 45 years of misery is enough. Dad, what are you talking about? His son screamed. We can't stand the sight of each other any longer, Dad says. We're sick of each other. I'm sick of talking about this. So you just call your sister in Greenville and you tell her that. So frantically, the son calls his sister who explodes on the phone. No way they're getting a divorce, she shouts. I'll take care of this. And so she calls Charleston immediately and she screams at her father, you are not getting a divorce. Don't do a single thing until I get there. I'm calling my brother back and we'll both be there tomorrow. And until then, don't you do a thing. Do you hear me, dad? And she hangs up. The old man hangs up his phone. Turns to his wife, says, done. They're coming for Christmas and they're paying their own way. (laughs) Well, the Christmas story, (laughs) the Christmas story is about, it's about family. It's about relatives. It's about travel. In fact, as you read the story in Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph travel 90 miles on a donkey. That's like traveling from here to Columbia on a donkey. She's nine months pregnant. The shepherds hear the mysterious announcement about a baby by angels. And so they travel a few miles to see this baby lying in a manger. But the most mysterious trip, and certainly the longest journey by far, is found in the book of Matthew, where we're going to look at tonight. And uh, it's found in Matthew chapter 2. And so if you have a Bible, you might want to take that. If not, uh, you can follow along on the screen, I'm sure. But I want to take just a few minutes. I want to read you the Christmas story from Matthew chapter 2. I want to make some observations about it, and then I want to make some applications that hopefully will kind of all of us will... um, kind of relate to. In fact, here's what I want you to do. I'd like you at the outset of the story as you read it, then you hear me talk about it. I'd like you to think about yourself this Christmas. 
In this story, there's three different kind of groups of people and characters. And I'd like you to honestly say, how would I fit? If I was in this story 2,000 years ago, who would I relate to the most? Fair enough? Then we'll ask that at the end. All right, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. And it goes like this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Israel with him. It's going to punch the pause button and kind of talk about that. It says after Jesus was born. Actually, it was quite a while after Jesus was born. Most people who kind of study these things think that was at least somewhere around two years after Jesus was born, this mysterious entourage from the east comes to Jerusalem asking some disturbing questions. Who are they? The Bible calls them magi. They were probably pagan priests. Some versions uh, call them uh, wise men. They are astrologers. They follow signs. They look at the stars. They try to predict things in people's lives. They're from Persia and Babylon. Present-day Kurds uh, from uh, Iraq, Iran. Um, They would have been somewhat familiar with the Jewish Bible, the Torah, because uh, earlier, several hundred years earlier, um, the Babylonians had captured the Israelites and they had taken them. In fact, you probably read the story or if you went to Sunday school, you heard about Daniel in the lion's den. Well, Daniel would have been one of these magi. He was probably the wisest man in Babylon at the time. Israel went back to their homeland, but a few of them stayed. And over time, there was probably some literature. And these guys had evidently studied it. So they knew at least a little bit about it. They were following a star. How far had they come? They'd probably come 40 days, 800 miles. Um, How many of them were there? We don't know. I mean, tradition, we three kings of Orient are. Did you ever sing that? I could sing it for you if you'd like to. I sang it church all my life. Uh, the early church labeled three kings and they named them actually in about 400 A.D. It was just kind of superstition. Uh, the Eastern church said that there were 12. We don't know how many there were, but there, were, there, there was more than one. And then there was a big entourage uh, with them. Why was their question so disturbing? We've come to see the newborn king, the king of the Jews. The reason it was disturbing is because the Jews already had a king. His name was Herod. Now, he was an illegitimate king. He wasn't even Jewish. He was Roman, and uh, he had kind of bribed his way in. About 40 years earlier, the Roman Senate had voted him the title King of the Jews. And so here are these guys from a foreign country coming in and saying something about there's, there, there, there's a child to be born, and he's to be the King of the Jews. And Herod is upset about that. Next verse. When he had called together, Herod, when he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. The story takes a little bit different turn here. Herod is not a Jew. 
but he worships with the Jews. He knows enough about the story of Judaism and God's interaction with them to know that there was going to be a Christ who would come, a Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the ultimate king, the final king, the one that would deliver them once and for all from occupation by foreign lands and people. He would be a king that would bring peace forever. He would be a king that would unite the world. He would be a king that would actually usher in the end of the age as they knew it. Every little Jewish kid knew about the Messiah. They looked forward to the coming Messiah, the king of the Jews. Next verse, in Bethlehem, they said, In Judea, he asked, where would he be born? They replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Who's who's answering this? The wise men, not the wise men, the, the, the religious leaders, the scribes of the time. They knew where the Messiah would come from. He'd come from Bethlehem. And they quoted Micah, a prophet from about 700 years before. And they said, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. And we know he had no interest in worshiping this soon-to-be king. He wanted to eliminate him and we see that a little bit later in the story. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And so I want to set the stage. After 400 years of silence, nothing. All of a sudden, God reveals Himself to an unlikely group of people. They're not the top candidates on the list. They're magi. They're not even Jewish. They're from afar. In a mysterious way, they follow a star. And when they find Him, their lives are changed in ways that they never could have imagined. You know, God does that sometimes. God reveals Himself to people. And they're profoundly changed. But it's not automatic. Everybody in this story doesn't have a profound change for the good. In fact, there's some less than good things happen. And so what I want to do just for a minute is is I want to talk about three responses. There are at least three responses in people's lives when God reveals Himself. The first one is this. Some people, when God reveals Himself, do nothing about it. They react with total indifference. And that's what happened with the chief priests and the scribes. I mean, for goodness sake, these guys, that's their whole job, was to study the Torah. The whole country is looking forward to the Messiah coming. Here comes some admittedly strange guys from another country Let's say a star guided them there. They knew more than they ought to about the coming Messiah. They're asking questions. Herod says, 
tell us where he's going to be born. They know where he's going to be born. They quote some scripture, and then it's just kind of back to work. I mean, for goodness sake, hop a camel and go six miles to Bethlehem to see if the Messiah really is come. But they weren't really looking for him. They had their own gig. I mean, they had it pretty well. They kind of worked the system. They were getting paid fairly well. And, you know, maybe this new Messiah would kind of upset things. We're really not interested in that. They were indifferent. thought about that this week as I was studying this story. You know, there are people today that are indifferent. You can find them in the church. Sometimes they're pastors. Sometimes they have a title of elders or deacons or... Sunday school teacher or greeter at the door or, or even a small group leader or maybe just an attender in the church. They're really not bad people. They're just not pursuing Jesus. They're not, they're not changed in any way by God revealing himself to them. In fact, study after study says that, you know what, most Christians are not much different than those that don't follow Christ in their choices, their decisions, uh, whether their marriages last or don't last, in a lot of the things that they do, how they react under stress, all kinds of studies. See, there's really not much different in a lot of believers. They're not really pursuing Christ indifferent. Not just in the church. There's, there's people like that in the world. They're not bad people. In fact, in America, they'd probably call themselves Christian, even though maybe they don't attend a church or whatever, but they're not pursuing Christ. They're just kind of indifferent to what God is doing. And if God shows up, maybe in their neighbor or maybe in a church, you know, around the corner, or maybe it's in a situation and there, there's just, there's something mysterious and God seems to be there and some people recognize it and they don't recognize anything. In fact, oftentimes it's a nuisance to them. Like the religious leaders, they totally miss it because of indifference. That's one group. There's a second group in the story. They're not indifferent. They are people who are threatened by God revealing himself. They react with hostility. And obviously the character that does that is Herod, right? Herod has no interest in God doing something new. In fact, he sees it as a threat to his deal. I am the king. There's already one king here, you know. And so he reacts with hostility. In fact, he goes and and uh, the reason he asked the, when they saw the star, he wanted to know how long it was. And He goes to Bethlehem and when they didn't come back to him, he orders uh, all of the, the, the male babies, two years old and younger, to be destroyed. Horrible, horrible thing because it's a threat to him. And so he reacts with hostility toward the good news. There are people in the world today who are hostile to Christianity. Obviously, radical Islamists uh, feel like Christianity is a threat. Recent violence in Iraq Iraq that was directed at the churches just all kinds of... Just a few weeks ago, a gunman went in and and, uh, uh, just killed 52 people who were doing nothing but praying. Christians who were doing nothing but praying and terrorists in the name of religion, feel like they're doing God's work. But it's not just radical terrorists who are hostile to Christianity. As a pastor, occasionally I get some incoming shrapnel on my Facebook account. You know, different kinds of folks. Sometimes 
It's people who intellectually don't believe that there is a God. And I got friends like that. I mean, there was a point in my life where I kind of went through that, that, that same kind of mental journey. And down through the years, there have been at least a handful of people that uh, were at least agnostic. One of them who called himself an atheist who I became friends with, and we discussed that. Some of them came to know Jesus. So to me, that's not a real big deal. But there are some who are hostile toward Christianity. It's kind of their mission to debunk everything that we know and we believe. You can see some of them on TV, some of them write books. There are other people that maybe they're not, you know, intellectually opposed to the whole, you know, idea that there is a God, but they feel like God has let them down somehow. I meet people like this every once in a while. Maybe there was a situation in their life where they prayed. Maybe it was for a loved one who was sick, or maybe it was a situation where they really felt like they needed God to bail them out of a situation. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and God never showed up. They're angry. Walk away and say, you know what, if there is a God, or maybe they look at the situation in the world today and say, you know what, if there is a God, I mean, what, how could he allow the things to go on with children, you know, and some starving nations and all of this, and they're angry toward God because they feel like God has let them down. So God reveals himself, and like Herod, they miss it because of hostility. And then there's a third group of people. And when God reveals himself, They're changed by it. And their response is to worship Him. That was the Magi. These are the least likely guys in the story to be changed. In fact, if I was putting money on, you know, just reading the first part of the story, if I was putting money on who's going to really encounter God here, I'd put it on the religious leaders. I mean, that's their job, you know. But it's the Magi. These are people that are far from God. So far it takes them 40 days to get there. They're on the no-fly list. They've got to ride camels. <laughs> Bars of gold wouldn't have made it through the cool little things you've got to go through in an airport these days. And they're late to the game. I mean, it's two years. Shepherds. You know, the shepherds were there with the nice, you know, kind of little manger and all that kind of stuff. The baby and it's fresh and it's all new. Two years later, these guys arrive. By that time, the Messiah is two years old. I've got grandchildren. Lots of them. I know what that was probably like. The Messiah is being potty trained and it may not have been going well. If he's like other children, he's a bit defiant. He's learned the word no. You try to get the whole group together for a picture. He won't pose for them. I don't know how Hallmark got all those nice pictures of the, the wise men and the little baby. I thought that was kind of funny, but obviously not. <laughs> These are not the kind of people you would expect God to use. I'm going to be honest with you. They're fortune tellers. These are the people that put the little pieces of paper in the cookies at P.F. Chang's. That's who these guys are. They're astrologers. They write the horoscope column for the Babylonian times. They would have had signs in their yards. We'll read your palm for 10 bucks. Far from God. Last people you would have expected in Bethlehem that night. You know, I, I would have given him a great three-point message about why it's 
what they're doing was wrong and the evils of sorcery. It's not what God did. God said, you like stars, do you? Let me make one for you. You're going to love this one. It just moves along and it goes slow. You can follow it. It's there all the time. It's really, really cool. See, God still uses any means possible to draw people who are far from him. You may relate to them. Some of you don't feel real comfortable being here tonight. You know, it's kind of like you feel like good church people might not be comfortable with your lifestyle. Or maybe the types of questions that you ask. And it was a chore for you just to come, but you did. You know what? God's glad you're here. You're exactly the ones that he's looking at, looking for, and wants to reveal himself to. The Magi get it. They got it. This is God. What happens when people get it? Well, in this story, there's three or four things that happen. You can kind of tell. Listen, you can kind of, I don't care what a person calls themselves. Might call themselves a Christian. Now, a lot of people that are, you know, call themselves Christian, they may not, may not be. They're no more, you know, it's just kind of like somebody said one time that uh, just because you're in a garage doesn't mean you're a car, you know, or something like that. It's the first service out of 33. We'll get it right. So how do you know? How do you know when somebody gets it? When God reveals himself and they get it, they're filled with joy. They're filled with joy. That's the first thing. It says, the scriptures say, when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. That's one of the ways that you can recognize a true follower of Christ is they're filled with a mysterious kind of joy. It's not a weird, creepy joy. Anybody know that? Somebody gives you a little too much eye contact and smiles too much? Yeah, that's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a, a joy that sometimes it just doesn't make any sense. In fact, 1 Peter 1 and verse 8 says, Though you have seen him, you lo- oh, though you have not seen him, he says, to a church like us, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I want to explain that to you if I can. Let me tell you where I saw it. I saw it in my friend, Sharon. I walked in to see Sharon on one of the last days of her life. Sharon was 40 years old, around 40. And she was leaving this earth way too soon. And to be honest with you, Sharon had not experienced in her lifetime some of the things that it takes for some of us to really feel happy or good about. Um, She never got married. I don't know that she ever dated anybody. Not that I ever saw. She didn't live in that nice of a house, to be honest with you, and the neighborhood was nothing to write home about. Um, She never made a whole lot of money at all. Uh, the last few years of her life, she was kind of a caretaker for uh, two adults that couldn't take care of themselves. 
And cancer had ravaged her body. And she was getting close to the end. And Sharon's life, though, was characterized by the answer that she gave to the question that I asked her that day as I walked into her room in that hospital. I said, Sharon, how you doing? That's why they don't let me go to the hospital much, because that's kind of a real stupid question when <laughs> people are like that. And Sharon looked back at me, and here's what she said. Here, Debbie was there. She heard, here's what she said. She said the same thing she said to me whenever I asked her that question. She said, I'm too blessed to be stressed. And she meant it. This is somebody that radiated joy. She used to drive me crazy in church services because she'd sit right up close to the front and she'd clap weird. I mean, just, I had to go to Sharon and say, Sharon, don't clap, huh? We got visitors here. This is strange. (laughs) She emanated joy. When, When you're really a believer, there is a joy that comes in spite of circumstances. Second characteristic is you become a worshiper. A worshiper. It says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and they worshiped him. So you can recognize a true believer by their willingness to worship. I thought about that. There's another friend that demonstrated that in my life. His name's Daryl. Daryl's a great guy, close friend. Been friend for, friends for years. Lives in Colorado. And uh, Daryl, after doing uh, some time in the Air Force, uh, he became a cop. And he did it all as a cop. When he first went in, he was undercover. They do that a lot. Uh, Washington, D.C., and then moved to Fort Collins, Colorado. He saw the underbelly that a lot of us don't see. And then he became a regular beat cop, and then a sergeant, and then a detective, and a lieutenant, and moved up. And he was finally the assistant to the chief and a spokesman for the mayor. He was a man's man. Loved to hunt, fish. He owns a golf course now. It's a wonderful kind of friend to have. (laughs) Whenever you get Daryl talking about God, about how God intersected his life, about how God revealed himself to him, this man's man start, you can see it just kind of in his cheeks just a little bit. They start to quiver a little bit and, and he doesn't want to talk anymore. And then the, kind of the tears start and then they begin to flow. As he recalls how God intersected his life and saved his marriage and he owes him so much. We used to go to church together. I go back and visit him and we go to church when I do. And I look over during a worship time and you see this guy that, that any guy would love to emulate. And here's this man's man during worship, engaged. Engaged. Sometimes he'll raise a hand to the Lord. Sometimes he just stands quietly. But he's engaged in worship. It's real. See, not everybody does the same thing. We won't all respond the same way. We won't all have tears. We won't all raise our hands in worship, but there will be response. We will be engaged in worship of God. So true believers are filled with joy. They're filled with worship. Third thing I know is that the worship will result in generosity. 
It says, Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. Why did they do that? Did God need their, you know, their gold bars? Did God need their money? No, God made it all. But you know what? Sometimes God moves in us to be generous because he has an overall plan. Think about this. After they left, Herod came to Bethlehem and he, and he tried to destroy all of the children, two years old and under males, so that he could wipe out the king. God spoke to Jesus' mother and father to leave and go to Egypt. And so they missed all of that. How did they get there? They were poor people. Where did they get the money from? They might have sold some of the frankincense and the myrrh. Maybe they didn't have to. Maybe there was enough gold that helped them to make the trip. And I, and I thought about that this week. And I thought they could have spent that on themselves. And it's okay to do that. But oh, the joy when you give and your gift goes beyond you. And it goes toward allowing other people to hear the good news. That's what happened here. And one of the key characteristics of people who get it is their Worship results in generosity. I think of my friend Joel. He demonstrates that to me. The economy has been especially tough on his business, as it has been on a lot of people around here. But any time, and I don't do it very often, not often enough, I do a message about giving and generosity, Joel will catch me out here in the lobby and he'll say, great, great message today, as if the rest of them are like, you know, whatever. But he says, great message. You've got to talk about that more. And you know, kind of inside, I probably haven't talked about it enough. Part of it has to do with not wanting people to feel like, you know, generosity and giving to God is some kind of a spiritual Ponzi scheme that helps people, you know, get rich and all this kind of stuff because that's not the intention of God at all. He blesses his people, but some people have distorted that. And Joel knows how I feel about that. But he'll say, you know what? You've got to let people know that God loves us to be generous. And anytime we have a kind of a special you know, need around here, Joel's always the first one up. There, in fact, there are three or four guys in the church. They, it's kind of a macho thing. They want to be the first one to give, you know. Because their worship is lived out and reflected in generosity. So, Three different responses to God revealed. Religious people were indifferent. Herod was hostile. The Magi worshipped. Let me ask you, I asked you at the beginning, kind of, where do you fit? If your story was in there, where would it be? Maybe you're indifferent. You're not a bad person. You're just not really pursuing Jesus if the truth were known, you're not that much different than people that, you know, God's not even on their radar screen. Worship is more about you going through the motions than a live dynamic relationship. Well, here's my question tonight. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Wouldn't it be incredible if right here, right now, you had an encounter with God that changed you for the rest of your life, like no doubt it did the Magi. What if on nearly the last day of 2010, you submitted your life to God? You said, God, I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to be indifferent. I don't want to miss you. And during our response time, you said, God, here am I. I repent of my indifference. 
wow, you've done so much in my life and I've just taken it for granted. And maybe during a response that we're going to do in a few minutes, maybe you get up from your chair and you go to a cross wherever you happen to be and here in the campuses and you whisper a prayer and you say, God, don't ever let me take you for granted. And you pin something to the cross that represents you and you walk away knowing that things are going to be different for you from this night forward. Maybe that's you. Maybe some of you are somewhat hostile. It might be an intellectual difference. You, you, may, you, know, you may not buy into the whole thing that Jesus is God and the virgin birth and all the miracles and, or even that there is a God. And maybe you're just here out of obligation to someone and I'm glad you came. Please indulge me for a minute. Take a look around you. We've been having this celebration for over 2,000 years. Not here at Seacoast. Some of you look that old, but it's, really, it's only been about 20 years here. But you know, for 2,000 years, rich and poor, young and old, geniuses and average Joes have been celebrating the coming of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that automatically proves that God is who He said He is. But if we're being honest and rational, doesn't it at the very least mean that Christianity is worth maybe a second look? I want to challenge you during our response time. Maybe just to, if there is a God, whisper a prayer to Him. Say, God, would you reveal yourself to me? If you want to talk to somebody about it, we'd love to. Make an appointment. We'll talk about it during this next year. Or you might have an anger toward a God that you think lets you down. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to be bitter all of your life? Or would you be open to maybe another side? Maybe there's a part of the story that you don't see, that your pain is just distorting so much that you can't see it. Maybe you whisper a prayer to God and say, God, I don't understand. Maybe you want to get up and go to a candle and light a candle and say, God, I want you to light up this area of my life. Or maybe you know somebody that is there and during our response time, you're just going to go light a candle and say, God, would you light that with the light of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit? Maybe you're a worshiper. (laughs) And there are hundreds of us here and thousands of us gathered wherever we happen to be. I want to invite you to do what worshipers love doing. I want to invite you at the end of this service to take a little bit of time and just to worship God. To receive communion together as we celebrate the fact that Jesus was not only born, but He lived a sinless life. And that He was crucified and He died for our sin. And that He rose again that we might have life. And we can experience joy. And so we can experience you know, generosity and and, and worship of a holy God. Just take some time to reflect on that. Go to the offering boxes and give generously as a reflection of what God has given to you and then sing your praises to Him. Okay? So we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to respond to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your kingdom. I thank you for the story that relates so well today 
as much as it did 2,000 years ago. And um, now I just pray for this group of people who are going to take a few minutes just to be honest with you. God, I pray that you would give us that sense of honesty and integrity here tonight. Here in this building and in the campuses. God, would you draw us to you? Would you reveal yourself to us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.